Welcome to Give and Take. It's a podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, activists, authors, theologians, philosophers, scholars, political pundits, and a host of others about their world, their work, and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a conversation that's free-flowing, entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, oftentimes enlightening and informative, and above all else, deeply human. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. My guest is Royfield Brown. Royfield is an experienced podcaster and media strategist with an impressive track record of helping companies enhance and grow their media properties to diverse audiences across a wide range of categories, including politics, history, culture, and entertainment. After working in pop promos, TV production, and running a large UK website, Royfield turned his professional attention to creating a podcast series, How Jamaica Conquered the World. The first episode was awarded the accolade of iTunes Podcast of the Week in May 2012. Royfield currently produces 10 American presidents, Dumpty Dum, Map Corner, Mid-Atlantic, How Jamaica Conquered the World, and Intelligent Speech, which cumulatively have amassed over 5 million downloads. He's a great guy, and he's also a friend. I give you Royfield Brown. Royfield, welcome to the podcast. Uh, Thank you for having me on. It's a real pleasure. So this is really interesting. I have developed a friendship with you over something called clubhouse which is becoming the rage i mean it's been in existence for almost a year i guess but really it's been kind of over the past few months has taken off and for those of you who don't know what clubhouse is it's an app that's audio only um and you generally most people log in through their phones and you just chat up people from all around the world about um all sorts of things and so royfield how did you wind up on Clubhouse? Um, my friend Wayne Campbell gave me uh, an invite at the start of February. I had heard of it before because I'm a bit of a media lovey, so you kind of know what's going on. Um, so I'd heard about it last year, summer, and um, I was vaguely kind of interested, then forgotten about it. But it, yeah, I, I kind of knew about it, but uh, I only had an invite at the start of, uh, start of February. <clears throat> And just to do a little background, you you are a podcaster and you are Jamaican, but um, a true Englishman. Um, and you host the renowned Mid-Atlantic podcast, which covers um, politics from the perspective across the Atlantic between the UK and the United States. And you live in California. So you're somebody that's seen a lot of the world. And experienced a lot of the world has has Clubhouse changed the way you think about podcasting? Yeah, well, at least it's made me think about podcasting formats. Um, I've become fascinated with the possibilities of um, Clubhouse uh, because, it, in effect, it's a two way podcast. You know, it has all the elements of podcasting which are great: the intimacy. Um, you know, you, you have the, the speakers in your ears and you feel like you know them. They can complete and utterly explain their position. Um, there's, a lot, there's a lot of nuance. But then, you know, the, the format, the fact that there is live stage and then there are people in the audience who can come up and add their wisdom to a topic really doesn't half add to uh, making it a rich experience. Um, so they, they, like like today I was on in a room called News, News, News. And what they do there is super clever, very simple concept. Anyone can come along and you've got three minutes. Uh, you've got, you find a, a news uh, story and you've got three minutes to explain it. And then people can talk about it. And they do it every day. And there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people in this room. No, not, not everybody goes up on the stage, but it means that you have a real kind of like rich, but slightly sometimes quirky view on on news. And it's news from all around the world, invariably, because Clubhouse is, uh, is a bias is towards America. So you get a lot of American news. But, but it's just a great, fascinating concept, which, um, you know, the, the, like the medium is the message type of thing. This is a great way of using the medium to craft something, you know, very slightly new. 
So I like that you brought up the medium is the message. And I forget the author who wrote that book, but um, how do you think the medium of Clubhouse is going to change messaging? In the, or will it? I mean, may, will it be a fad? I mean, will it be Vine or something like that? Will it be an app that lives and dies? Or is it going to be this enduring, endearing kind of thing that actually just does change messaging politically and culturally and socially? I, I'm 50-50 as to whether Clubhouse <laughs> itself will remain. I've got a sneaky feeling that it could well be MySpace. However, 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 um, audio social networking is here to stay. It could well be that Twitter picks up the ball and runs with it. Hopefully it's not going to be Facebook because I think that's fraught with a whole load of problems if it's Facebook. So whether whether Clubhouse stays i generally don't know but what it has done is to um create connections like i, I don't i don't overblow this at all right but there are many rooms at the moment about the palestinian and israeli conflict many many rooms not all of them descend into chaos and shouting and rancor and that and that's really good when you have somebody on the ground who can talk, um, you know, really with a sense of authority because they're there about what's going on, you stop and you listen. This message isn't being filtered by a reporter from CNN or NBC or the BBC or, you know, um, Canal Plus. This is somebody on the ground and they're telling you what it's like when these missiles are whistling ahead. Uh, you listen. You know, so the very fact that these rooms do not descend into instant arguments um, tells us that not that Clubhouse is going to be the solution to to uh, put this crisis, this hundred year old crisis, to bed, but it gives us hope for the future that um, maybe with new bits of technology, we'll have new ways of connecting and new ways of. Uh, conversing and then new ways to kind of solve this intractable problem clubhouse is not going to be the solution but it gives you hope for humanity is my point so what do you think is different because we we have capacity via social media for connection it happens you know internationally and outside of your local tribe and kind of identity group and so forth but what do you think is different about clubhouse Is it the audio piece? Is it the conversational piece that that makes it a distinguishing reality from something like Facebook or Twitter? Um, So I've kind of thought about this quite a bit. And 10 plus years ago, I was really quite into Twitter for a good year, 18 months. But Twitter, with Twitter, Twitter fundamentally is shouting In, in a loud room. You're shouting. Um, you've got 147 characters, which you, which you need to distill um, complex ideas into, right? 146 characters. So there's no nuance. What you can do is be really clever and funny and witty on Twitter, but there's no nuance. There's no, I believe this, however, but here's another perspective. There is no nuance. And there's no real conversations. It's a case of people shouting their viewpoints, however eloquently they might be shouting, it's shouting because you've got to get it out there and you want people to pay attention, then it's gone. However, um, and then, then with Facebook, what you have is fundamentally your real life social network. And then by extension, maybe another layer on top of that, but fundamentally like my mum's on Facebook, my dad's on Facebook, my auntie Mo's on Facebook. Right. So if you want to create a situation whereby uh, you're talking about something which is um, you're trying to evangelize about something, invariably three quarters of that network knows that you're into X or Y or Z already. Where Clubhouse is different, let's say so audio social media, because as I said, I don't know if Clubhouse is really going to be around for, for, for the long term, but the, the concept will be you have nuance, you have real life conversations and that is gold and and as i said before if you think about the arab israeli thing to hear two people not through the prism of 
I am, um, I have an elected position or through the prism of I'm a media spokesman, have a conversation is, is utterly uh, brilliant. And that's what you can have on this platform. Don't get me wrong. You can have a lot of nonsense too. Fun nonsense, 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 you know, clever nonsense. But you can have intelligent conversations where people go, hmm, I hadn't thought about that before. It's almost like the best dinner party. That's, that's one way to describe it, you know, where people, it, it's about ideas and people give each other time and the space to talk and to expand on something. And sometimes conversation can be a little bit circular, uh, but it's conversations and you don't get that on any other social media platform. You don't really get it on Twitter you don't really get it on on Facebook because people kind of you come already preloaded with, with your prejudice about someone because you kind of know them, but on this you do. Yeah, I mean, you have spent a lot of time on this app because I just no, know, and, and and I have it as well. Never, so. no. no, no, no. <laughs> but I mean, what is it that you? I mean, you and I have both spent a lot of time in the app over the past few weeks because I see you in different rooms and. And we've become acquainted with mutual friends. I mean, I, I I would say like you and I have never met in person, and I would say you're my friend. I mean, I I, I would say that unreservedly, um, without qualification. What is it that is actually getting you to spend the amount of time you're spending on the app? Because I'm spending a lot of time on it, and and and, and I know you are. So what what is the what is drawing you there? And, and maybe you, you've, you've kind of alluded to some of it, but I mean, what is existentially drawing you there? Well, for me personally, I'm a functioning dyslexic. So I remember I said that I was kind of into Twitter 10 plus years ago. Um, I would have to write a tweet, reread it, read it another three times, walk away from the tweet, come back, notice there was a spelling mistake, I'd missed a word out, et cetera, et cetera. And I was relatively successful on, on it for a time. Um, but my dyslexia just got the best of me. You know, I was misspelling too many tweets. This, I'm a conversationalist. I believe I can talk. I believe I can listen. I believe I can... Um, have a jokey conversation which has elements of seriousness and um, my my knowledge on on world affairs is somewhat catholic so i can fake a certain amount of knowledge on in a certain amount of topics so this thing is just built for somebody like me who's who's a bit of a talker and, and let me say you when know. you say catholic you mean in the in the classic definition of the term right universe you mean exactly. universal, universal. Not, not religious exactly. yeah absolutely that's what i mean so I'm a generalist. And if you're a generalist and you're a little bit chatty, this is the type of medium where you can really shine. So so that's the reason why I was initially drawn to it. And then you go, you know, there's people talking about topics and you go, wait on a minute, I know more about that more more about it than they do, type of thing. So so you you kind of draw drawn you pull yourself up on stage type of thing. There is no two ways about it. There's a dopamine hit when your follow follower count goes up. You know, let, let's just be honest about that. Um, it's one way that you measure some level of success. You know, you think you've made a good point, you've landed a good argument, or you've modded a good room, or you've set up a good room, whatever. And then you, you check your follow count. It's gone up by 10. And you go, yeah, you know, I, I've done well. Um, so there is that element, you know, and we have to be honest about that. Um, so it. The the other thing is as well that I know you and I are the same here that we're both actually digital nomads. So I spend six months of my year in California, two to three months in Toronto, uh, two months in the UK, then maybe two weeks to a month somewhere else on planet Earth. And I have my friends, you know, I have my friends, I have my family, I have my children. This is another way of staying connected with with people and and new friends and having new stimulus and and you know and again if you're a bit of a digital nomad you can't think of a better kind of um platform really you know i can be in 
Toronto or I can be in California as I am now and I can still be hanging out with, with, with my buddies online, you know, shooting the shit, shooting the breeze, talking about stuff, you know. So I I just, you know, yeah, you know, that's the reason why I've been, been drawn to this thing. Do you think people are going to start like um... – Somebody asked me today on Clubhouse, some of our mutual friends um, asked me, do I have a Clubhouse crush yet or things like this? Do you think people are going to start falling in love here? Oh, absolutely. This thing is too compelling. Audio is too compelling. I do a podcast. I do many podcasts, but one of the podcasts I do, which is probably my most successful, is a thing called Dumpty Dum, which is a show about a radio document, a radio drama, sorry, which has been running in Britain since 1951 so 70 years old and just for a trivia fact uh, there's one actor who appeared in episode one who's still in it now 70 years later June Spencer anyway one of the reasons why that program is so successful is because it's <coughs> audio only so you the listener create your own version of how the characters look how the characters houses look how their farms look and it's and and we know this because I do occasional zooms with the actors from the archers, and I get them on camera, and invariably, somebody will email him and said, "Oh my God, I didn't know that this character looked like that. It's completely ruined it for me." There's the same thing happening here on Clubhouse. There's a lot of projection going on, and dare I say it, to be successful on any social media, you need to be authentic and it's a somewhat of a slightly hackneyed uh, phrase you can't lie because you'll be found out eventually but you can't be all yourself all the time and nobody is even in, in real life but what that means though you're presenting your best self your funniest self your most compelling self you know the self of you which is you know dare I say um, really concerned about the Uyghurs and or into ska music. So you you find that you paint this perfect picture of the person who's talking, you know. They are handsome, beautiful, well-dressed, uh, you know, breath is minty fresh, as well as them intriguing you with a point of view, maybe educating you, making you laugh, you know, talking to you when you're curled up in bed, you know, you got your earbuds in. Of course, we're going to fall in love with these people who, who we're listening to and think that um, and feel viscerally that they are our best friends. You know, it, it stands to reason because all of the gaps, you can paint a really vivid picture and they become a perfect person. Do you do you think I'm wondering because um, I know I want to switch and I'm sorry I'm switching gears on you so fast but you're Renaissance man and I kind of want to I want to get do justice to the full Royfield. You're a comic book aficionado, um, and some of our kind of conversations on Clubhouse and off Clubhouse um, center around our our mutual passion for superheroes. Do you think there's something about alter egos that have to be? in some level discontinuous with ourselves because otherwise it's not an alter ego, but also it can't be totally discontinuous. I mean, like, like, is that, is that what we're doing on clubhouse? Are we, are we creating our comic book selves in clubhouse? Well, if we're going to keep this analogy going and really sorry, just quickly off mic. Sorry, Sagat, cause my mic just fell over then. Um, back on mic. No. Is I, I refer you to an answer I gave a couple of minutes beforehand. To be successful on any social media, whether it's Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, or Clubhouse, you fundamentally need to be honest. But that honesty, um, maybe what you reveal on that social network is maybe only the, the tip of your le level of honesty. Not to say that what's behind it is dishonest, but there are other things which you don't mention. Maybe you know, you um, have controversial views on something else and or um, have numerous speeding ticket fines, whatever. Those, those don't need to be brought up. So to follow the... Do you have analogy, numerous speeding ticket fines? Are you confessing fun, funnily something? Funnily enough, 
funnily enough, I, I have one in the UK. And because this is one of the problems of being a, a bit of a digital nomad, I have to give an address in the UK, which is mother and fathers. And um, my mum and dad do not routinely open posts that comes to me because it's like bank statements and whatever. But I've been gone for 10 months now. So uh, they opened uh, my post. And of course, it was first letter saying you've got a speeding ticket, pay £100. Uh, if you pay it by 28 days, then it was you haven't paid it. So it's 200 You went up to £800. So I have one. And this is one of the problems where you have parents that you know respect your privacy by not opening your post and then also uh because i went 10 miles over the speed and tick uh, over the speed limit um back in august in brighton so so yes but are those kind of fees what makes the national health service possible i mean <laughs> is this why they have good health care maybe if we had if we have 800 dollars speeding tickets everybody in america could get health care yeah you know this this is not please please hear me it was like a hundred pounds first off. This is because um, after 10 months, I've responded to none of the letters and they took me to court unbeknownst to me and the judge then fined me. So this is the worst of the worst. Now, literally, the bailiffs were about to come round to my mum and dad's house and they pushed the letter through the door by hand to say, we're going to repossess uh, the car. So I bought a car for my mother last year and when i purchased it it was in my name they were coming to repossess the car and very obviously the car is worth much more than, than 800 pounds but th this is an inherent problem of being a digital native um sorry a digital nomad and, and, and traveling traveling the world and not really having a physical address but no um the british uh, health service um, isn't uh, pimped on the back of uh, my speeding fines or anybody else's. And it is uh, one of the jewels in the crown uh, of Britain. Uh, it's the, it is the one unifying um, element of the country, which everybody in Britain is, is pro at the National Health Service. So we won't have any cheap jibes or jokes or slights thrown at our National Health Service. Thank you very much, please. So, so can I say for all the single ladies listening, and you're an eligible bachelor as far as I know, is it fair to say based on your recent history with the authorities and constables in the UK that you have avoidance <laughs> issues? No, what I, I, I'm not that great at organizing myself, myself on a micro level. That's what they're selling you, Scott. You know, um, I had one parking ticket and one speeding ticket which i didn't address because i wasn't in the country you know i don't think that really counts for avoidance issues per se i'm just slightly disorganized fair enough but i want to i want to come back to something you said though that like so when you said when i, when I proposed the alter ego kind of thing and you said you have to be authentic <clears throat> aren't most superheroes um isn't their alter ego rooted oftentimes in authenticity i mean isn't it an extension of of who they are it just but, but maybe unbeknownst to themselves um it, you're forcing me to think about something which i would never thought of before but it, the analogy of the fantastic four for me seems like the best one in that they don't wear masks reed richards is reed richards he might call himself mr fantastic when he dons that blue outfit or sue storm calls herself uh the invisible woman but she's sue storm everybody knows that she's she's sue storm and do they know um that her and reed richards have maybe had a fight this morning before they go out and fight dr doom no do they know what her favorite dish is uh to cook or or to eat or that her and johnny storm her brother have fallen out about X and Y and Z or that they're having a conversation about should their mother go into a nursing home? No, but it's still Sue Storm. So I think the analogy is, is the Fantastic Four. They don't wear masks. People know who they are, but they only know so much about them. That's an underrated um, superhero team. Who's the best Marvel villain? Mm, goodness. 
Well, we, we did talk about this on Superpowered a couple of weeks ago. And I think one of the most compelling characters is Magneto. Um, he starts off in the comic as an out-and-out villain. Um, but like, but after 20 years of being in the Marvel character, <clears throat> you realise that he has a bloody good point, you know. Um, and the Stan Lee, some 10, 15 years after creating Professor X and Magneto, like he said that he modelled them on uh, Malcolm X and Martin Luther King. Professor X is uh, Martin Luther King and Magneto is, is Malcolm X. And they're actually two sides of, of the same coin. It's just that one really believes uh, in cooperation and the other one uh, wants, uh, a, rad wants a, a fair solution by more radical means. So if you look at where Magneto starts off in the comics as this out-and-out -out villain, um, wanting uh, no accommodation with humanity, and then being um, and then fighting Professor X, even though they're both friends. Um, I think Magneto is by far the most uh, compelling, not Marvel villain, but um, antagonist. It's not even an antagonist because a villain is an antagonist. The most compelling Marvel character who starts off in the mind's eye of the reader as being a villain. If you could undo a, a character in the comic books, and you're a Marvel guy, so I'm, I'm assuming it's going to be a Marvel character. If you could unliberate them from their story and let them go back to normal, who would it be? Oh, wow. You know, in, in many ways, uh, Scott, I feel somewhat of a fraud with all this superhero talk because my superhero knowledge in terms of reading comics stops about 15 years ago. So, um, like Kamala Khan, uh, Miss Marvel, I know that she exists. I can tell you one thing about her backstory, her origin story or anything. So, um, Miles Morales, I only know him from the, uh, Into the Spider-Verse, uh, movie, which was most excellent. So I'm going to answer, go on. Oh, no, go ahead. I'm going to answer your question like a politician. I'm going to answer it in the way that I want to and subtly forget your question. Um, the hero I have the biggest problem with is Superman because he's overpowered, he's OP, and he's hard to write, he's hard to imagine, and I don't think he's ever been portrayed in a, in a realistic, real-world way. I've always liked, even as a small child, I always liked my heroes to be street-level so I always loved Captain America because you could kind of understand his world. He didn't have lasers coming out of his backside. He can't fly in space. You know, he's like us, but he's stronger and faster type of thing. You know, he has real-world physics to his heroism, whereas Superman doesn't have real-world physics. You know, Superman doesn't need to breathe. He can fly into space, just all manner of craziness, right? So... What I would do is I would depower Superman. Because if you think about it, if Superman truly existed in our world, he would be a god. Superman would create an existential threat to organized religion because he's a god. He's a living god. You, uh, If you have somebody who can hover above you in the way that Superman can, who can literally pick up a mountain and throw it, you know, 100 miles, your faith in Christianity, Islam, Judaism, Hinduism is going to be shaken. For some, not all. For some, it's going to heighten their belief in it and they're going to hate Superman. So I think that um, a bold writer for Kal-El would uh, really put give Superman some real-world physics, but the phys physics would be ethics and what he would represent to humanity being a god and and the panic and the fear and the loathing and the acolytes and the disciples he would have you know superman would be a highly divisive figure on planet earth if he truly existed and i'd i'd want to i'd want to see that from a creative point of view but from a comp but a simple comic book reader point of view depower him take away the laser beams the super breath all that super nonsense and whatever 
just make him a bit stronger than everybody else. He can't fly into space. Uh, and you have a much more kind of compelling character who can fight baddies kind of on that level, really. Yeah, and can I say, like, morally and ethically and emotionally, I don't know what this says about me, but I took such joy in Ben in, in Ben Affleck's Batman kicking Superman's ass. Like, that was such a great scene. Um, and the other thing I just that you brought to my mind was the way the gospel writers tell the story of Jesus, who, you know, whatever you, it, it, whether you believe in Jesus or you think it's a myth or whatever, they portray him as a person that was self-emptying with his power, which is almost the only thing you can do, right? If you're that powerful, like the only interesting story is to be weak in the power. And, but you can't write Superman that way. It's, it's, it's the tragic no, flaw no, of no, the character. No. Well, they, they do give Superman or Kal-El. Let's be careful who we saying. They do do give Kal-El um, a love of humanity which actually is his real kryptonite because you can make a strong argument for saying that if you have the powers of a God, right. And you can fly into space. Why would you care about planet earth and humanity? Why, you know, why would you? So Superman's real kryptonite isn't the green stuff that Ben Affleck uh, had in his armor to beat up Superman. It's his love of humanity, which is another reason why that film, um, Superman Returns, not Superman Returns, the first Superman film when he's fighting General Zod was an utter nonsense because Kal-El did not care in his Superman form for all the collateral damage he was causing by fighting General Zod when they're flying through buildings. Superman would care and would do anything to take that fight somewhere else. He would take it to the Himalayas, he'd take it to the Gobi Desert, knowing that uh, innocent people are being killed. But this is what Ben Affleck's Batman picks up on. And, and and what makes them enemies? I mean, it's a very interesting storyline because Ben Affleck's Batman. Oh, it's it's really not, you know, Scott. I'm a fan of that film. Come on. Well, that that says a lot about you. Give me a which break. We, I think we should gloss over, really. All right. So here's the thing. I so you have expressed your affinity for Captain America, and you are a man that's lived across continents. Um, and you weren't born in America, but I, when I, I mean, I've spent just time with you on Clubhouse and you have a love for America. I mean, you really do. And yet you're a critic of it in some thoughtful ways. I mean, how does that sort out in your head, your love for the country and yet your critical eye towards it? I mean, how does that all work out in your own soul? Well, we're doing a perfect circle is the reason why I like Clubhouse, because if I, I cannot sum up in 147 characters the fact that um, every most things have dual nature. You know, the way that I view something isn't necessarily the way that anybody else is going to. And that gives it a dual or a multifaceted nature. And when it comes down to history, I, I adore history. And um, And I said something once in a room and you quoted it back to me and I thought, oh, that sounded a bit clever. Right. Because I hadn't even emotionally, it's where I sit, but I, I didn't realize that I'd put it in the way that you said. And when people rag on and just hate on about America, as many people on the left do, and I'm definitely a creature of the left, I have to say, hold on a minute. And when people on the right say that um, America has, has done no ill and that the Constitution is this wonderfully perfect document, you have to say, hold on a minute, the truth is somewhere in the middle. And that's the reason why I love Clubhouse. You can say, but this and but that, have some nuance. So, and I know we have uh, Brother Aram uh, in the audience here. And, uh, but uh, this is kind of what I said, and it took you to remind, remind me of this. And this is the reason why I'm somewhat in love with the idea of America. Number one, it's the first modern state in the world to have a written set of rules of how it should govern itself. Um, Americans fetishize about its constitution and ultimately from a historical perspective, it will be uh, the key thing which will be the country's downfall because it won't be flexible enough to meet the uh, challenges of the future, which will call into question some of the basic tenets of its constitution. 
So Americans fetishize about the First Amendment, the Second Amendment, on and on and on. Forget that. But there is a constitution, is revolutionary. All countries since say when they gain independence or have a revolution, we need to write down the rules. America's first in that regard. Gets independence from Britain, and we don't have um, a written constitution. Um, ours just evolved over conventions over time. So America is, you know, first in the world with that, first modern nation. Other peoples, other confederacies of the plains might have had constitutions, but it's the first modern nation to do so. Great. However, um, it is the last industrialized nation to have universal suffrage. For shame, America, for shame. You know, 1964 Voting Rights Act enshrines that all adults can have the vote. This should be something of great shame for Americans, right? Um, every other nation, comparable nation, has done this decades before, decades before. However, America is also uh, the first, truly first world industrial power to have uh, a head of state who's of a racial minority. Now, there's Fujimora of Peru in the 1980s, but Peru is not a first world industrial uh, state. And I'm sure we can go back and look at, like, um, the last uh, Medici ruler of Tuscany was actually half black. No, pe most people don't. That's one of the little quirks of history. But we're talking about modern industrial countries. America is the first one to have a head of state elected who is from a racial minority. Now, all of those three things are facts, undisputable facts. And it just goes to um, how to view America, bit good, bit bad, view, viewed in the middle, things it should be proud of, things it should be ashamed of. What I love is the whole idea of the American experiment, which makes for somewhat interminable uh, conversations around politics, around the Constitution and the interpretation of the Constitution, and only in America. It's the only industrialized nation that talks forever about its constitution in its daily politics. But the idea of what it is to be a citizen, I do find fascinating. So Royfield, um, Royfield, what I'd like to do in a minute is if you're open to this, because we've got some people listening in. Um, if you're okay with it, I'd like to open them, open the floor up to ask you some questions from the audience. Uh, that that's most awesome. But I'll tell you what I'm going to do, right? Because I'm at 9%. This is obviously off mic now. It's so got a little bit of editing to do, Scott. I'm going to go and get my charger for, for the laptop. Right? What am so I going to do? Uh, why don't you just keep the audience warm? And, all right, here we uh, go. And, and I'll this be is, back this in 30 is, this seconds. Is, this is all right. I'm timing you. By the way, thank you so much. Yeah, let me just reset the room. Um, so Royfield and I are friends, and many of you who are listening in are friends of Royfield and I. I do a long-form interview podcast called Give and Take, um, where I interview all sorts of interesting people. And I, I was taking kind of a sabbatical from the podcast, and my, my reemergence from the sabbatical was to interview Royfield. And I feel like he is not disappointed. And uh, so we're, um, yeah, we're just talking and chatting, and, and he is scrambling around in his flat I sound so British saying things like flat um, for his charger. And so, uh, oh, I heard the charging thing because I was going to have to do my Aram joke, which I might still do. Um, it's very possible. But uh, um, I think Royfield is back with us almost. I am back. So, would, would, so I want to ask you um, just one more question, and then we'll open it up, if you're okay, to the audience. Um Politically, you're a guy that I, one of the reasons I like to talk with you is you're full of life and passion and exuberance and, and interesting kind of enthusiasm for reality. What, what keeps you in the game? I mean, what, what, what keeps you, because politics, I mean, you, you do, and we, and I'll have you back on to talk about politics and get more into specifics of policy and things like that. But 
I, I just want to know what keeps you in the game because you're a guy that seems alive and you're a person that's a very serious person. How do you stay serious and yet still stay <laughs> alive and joyful? Scott, I don't think I'm that serious, to be honest with you. Like, my most popular room on Clubhouse isn't the politics show I've been doing for seven years, Mid-Atlantic. It's afternoon tea, where I talk about nothing, right? So I don't know how serious I, I, I truly am. But what what excites me, I, I'm, I'm not really um, a dyed-in-the-wall person who can talk about the, the specifics of policy, whether it's British or American. I'm actually not. Um what keeps me going is history and geopolitics and the and it's where and and basically what politics is is history today so what i what i like enjoy and what i get off on to answer your question is the stuff which i know or i believe i understand from the history of a country and then how that plays out today you know, in its politics, in its society, that's what I get off on. So when I'm in Canada, I'm fascinated about Quebec and going to, um, and how that sits with the rest of Canada. Um, when I'm in California, I'm fascinated with this idea of, of going West and of the American dream and of California in many ways being the epitome of, a, of American aspiration, but then also that uh, many right-leaning Americans see it as the worst aspects of America, you know, and then it's, you know, going back to understand the reasons for that historically, you know, so that's what keeps me going. I just love history and I love geopolitics. So would it be okay to um, open this up to the room and have oh, yeah. some people <laughs> ask you questions? So how would we do this, by the way, for our studio audience? Um, we're doing this on clubhouse. I mean, normally we don't do give and take um, on an app like this. So we're going to have to figure out, do we invite everyone on stage? Scott, it's your podcast, but I, I, I would say considering that looking at it, these are all people who we know invite we're, them all on stage. We're inviting and, uh, everyone. Everyone is going to interview Royfield. Well, maybe ask a question or so. Here we go. So this is an experiment. Everyone has been oh. invited on stage. No, this is Scott Jones intervoids, interviews Royfield Brown. No, only Scott. <laughs> Dylan, how are you? That was Dylan, by the way, everybody. So there we go. That was our first. Um, I think that was a little bit of friendly trash talk from our friend Dylan. Does anyone have a question for Royfield? We have Beth on the stage, Jaihun, and Jake. Anybody have a question that they want to put Royfield on the spot with? Um, you can really embarrass him now because this is going into the interwebs. But also you're editing it though, Scott. Oh, no, there's no edits. There's no edits, Royfield. Anything you say is f forever so, for posterity. So wait a minute. So when my mic fell over, you're going to leave that in your podcast? Oh, Totally. Wow. Didn't you know you can't edit audio? That's just not a thing that can be done. <laughs> Beth from Hamilton, New Jersey. What would you most want to ask Royfield Brown, who is the person we all adore on Clubhouse? Scott, I, 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 you, you've been a real good, you did a real good job being my hype man. But, but I, I don't know about the all adore here. But anyway. What possessed you to let Scott interview you for his podcast? Vanity. Sim simple as that. He asked me, I think last week, he said, hey, buddy, we should do something together. I'll interview you. And the one topic I am unimpeachable about is myself. So uh, my, my knowledge of Prussian history, circa the reign of uh, Frederick the Great, is okay. It's not brilliant, but my knowledge on me, impeccable. So he wanted to talk about me. I thought I can do that. Fantastic question, Beth. Roy Phil, this is Jake. Hello, Jake. I have to ask you, I don't have to, but I'm choosing <laughs> to ask you, are you now, or have you ever been accused of being the alter ego of Greg Ellis? 
Oh, God, no. <laughs> you know what, Jake? I, I, I like the question. And um, I've got a lot of time for Greg. I think Greg might have less time for me. Um, he can... So for people that don't know, uh, Greg Ellis is um, an actor of some repute. Um, he's been in a lot of lot of movies. He does a lot of rooms on Clubhouse and... He, he, was, he was third engineer in the second Star Trek movie. There you go. He's also been in Pirates of the Caribbean. He's, he's done a lot of stuff. He's also a very good raconteur. Um, he does a lot of rooms, and there's a certain there's a certain tone to his rooms. He's very convivial. You know, it's eleven o'clock at night. He's got a great voice, a lovely manner, etc. Um, we did have a, a slight run-in uh, about a week week ago, um, which I was somewhat bemused by. But does um, great rooms, so I wouldn't want to be his alter ego. Uh, for me, he's not my bet noir. However, I might be his. That's the truth of the matter. So, is it safe to say then that you have never been photographed next to him? <laughs> um, so we we talked about. Um, how you can f really forge friendships on, on this app. And one of the things um, is there's a, a vector of friendship forming, which is time dependent, i.e. obviously you can be connected with everybody on the globe, but you kind of find that you log on to this app at the same time that other people's do that are in the same time zone as you. So actually the chances of you speaking to somebody who maybe lives in the next adjoining town is actually quite strong. So yes, um, there was somebody who I kind of like the cut of his jib and he seemed to be saying all the right things uh, politically, which I lined up with, but then saying them in a much more eloquent and informed way that I ever could. Uh, and uh, we, after this went on for a couple of weeks, we decided to meet up and actually have a drink. And I was photographed next to Eram in a bar in San Francisco. The most divisive person on Clubhouse. <laughs> the person who's alienating. And you share a stage with him. And we've said his name. Adam. Adam, do you have a question for Royfield? Aram's not even listening because his press clips are so big right now. <laughs> Jaihan, do you have a question for your betrothed? Um, yeah, obviously I do. Thank you for this, Scott. It's nice to see the other side of you. It's really pleasant. Um, Royfield, because you are so deeply invested in different types of pop culture, which vein has felt like it's produced the best conversations for you through clubhouse versus other social media apps oh that that, that that's definitely a good one um i have okay so the biggest podcast that i do in terms of listener interaction is the thing called Dumdy Dum. So I mentioned The Archers before, the 70-year-old radio drama in the UK. However, I don't. I haven't pulled that on onto Clubhouse. If it was a conversation about me and other bits of social media, that would completely win out, full stop, hands down. It's actually... American history isn't pop culture, though, is it? So I have to park that one. So it's not 10 American presidents. Here's the thing. I was going to say, I was in a room earlier today which is talking about um, programming on Clubhouse. And for me, the irony is the show, Mid-Atlantic, which I've been doing for seven years, which I've now pulled onto and record on Clubhouse, I thought that would just like take off. But there are other people that do politics on this app and they do it better than me, obviously. They have hundreds of people in their room where if I get 20, I've done well. The room which seems to be the most fun and is gathering momentum is afternoon tea where 
I pretend that I'm um, in a virtual tea shop and people have to gain entry by talking about their love of tea. And then we just talk about nothing. So it's the art of conversation. So um, I would say that, but tea is not really a part of pop culture, is it? If I have to, strictly speaking, answer your question, I had, I love music and I love the dissemination of popular music within Britain. I can talk about that with some level of depth and authority. I did a presentation on SCAR, which is so important in understanding modern Britain. Uh, so that was probably the most enjoyable, which I've now put up as a podcast so people can actually listen to listen to that. So if strictly speaking to answer your question, SCAR, um, in a wider sense to do with culture and history, it's actually American politics through 10 American presidents. Um, but actually the room which I'm having the most amount of fun, which is something which is not planned, is actually afternoon tea. So, Royfield, I mean, you're a guy that's got a great moral compass, but does it frustrate you? Because I think you're a really talented guy, and I, I've interviewed a lot of interesting people. By the way, the person I interviewed... You know, I love your questions, Scott. Right? Right. Well, you're, well, you know. you're so not a journalist. Royfield, I love you. Yeah. Blah, 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 blah. I do, I do. <laughs> I, I really... But the guy I interviewed last before you was the former Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams. He was the last guest oh, of the podcast. Good guy. Good um, guy. Yeah, a very good guy. Does it frustrate you? Like, do you ever struggle with the resentment? That I'm not the Archbishop of Canterbury? No, that just you don't have bigger rooms or you don't have a bigger audience. Because I think you're one of the most talented people I've talked with. And oh, how Scott. do you deal with, like, how do I deal with frustration that yeah, I'm, we, I'm not more yeah, famous? They, exactly. How do you do it? <laughs> Uh, well, put it like this. Um, maybe if, if we're just trying to be honest, um, 15 years ago, yeah, I, it might have bristled, uh, with me. Uh, but now I don't really care. All I know is that, um, I can kind of within reason do what I want to do. And within reason, I kind of get paid for it within reason. So the fact that I've been asked to do a podcast with Golden State Warriors and asked to teach at, at Berkeley is fantastic, right? Um, these are things which I, I can do and I think I can do a good job at and I get paid for, pay, you know, paid to do. So that's fine by me, utterly fine by me. But what changed, what emotionally for you changed? Like how did you get to the place where you could acquiesce with the fact that you weren't getting the biggest room or the biggest tweet following or the biggest downloads. Like, how do you, like, how did you, well, okay. That in, in, yourself? In, in terms of downloads, I do, do all right in terms of podcasts, you know, um, I can't write to save my life. So me not being big on Twitter, I came to peace with very quickly. Uh, I don't, I'm not a great sub editor. I'm not a great writer. Two things you need, need for Twitter. Um, this app, I'm still relatively new, new on it. So it is what it is. I'm 52, Scott. So, you know, I don't think I'm ever going to be famous anymore. I'm not going to date the best looking woman in Hollywood. Uh, you know, some, I might've aspired to that at the age of 22, but I'm 52. My priorities have changed. I just want to get, do what I want to do, get paid for that. And, uh, at the end of the month, you know, have some, have some, uh, backup, spare money left over so i can uh squirrel it away for my kids that's what's most important that's beautiful you know my dad's a bus. well my dad's a bus driver at least he was a bus driver that's real work you know he got he drove a bus for 30 years in and around birmingham you know um that's real work strictly speaking what i'm doing now is i'm working and i'm talking about myself my life is light and shade uh, from what my father's was. And because my father came over and sweated in that bus, it's allowed me to talk about myself and call it work. You know, happy days. I'm very lucky. So I want to wind this down, but I want to ask, because um, people that might listen to this, because we're going to tag it like with Clubhouse kind of tags and things. And, and people are going to get on Clubhouse probably from listening to this conversation because you've 
you've really articulated why it's a life-giving thing. You're a, you're a citizen of the world and a good citizen of the world and someone I really appreciate. Like what, what kind of recommendations would you give to aspiring clubhouse citizens? Well, I really do believe that good digital citizenship means that we need to be cognizant of when we're staying in our own echo chambers and we need to uh, periodically, regularly get out of them. It's great to be um, shooting the shit with your friends and having that uh, virtual, virtuous feedback loop of, yes, our arguments are infallible. Yes, our view on, on the world is, is the only right one that there is to have uh, but good citizenship means that we need to um, specifically on clubhouse occasionally not every day but occasionally we do need to go into other rooms other environments which we wouldn't readily see as being ours and listen to people you know listen to people and how they view the world it's not to say that their view is right and yours is ultimately wrong but to understand that there are other ways of viewing the world uh, and, and, and how it's actually st structured. And then when you've taken the temperature of the room, uh, then to respectfully um, ask people about that and, and tell them about your view. I think that is going to be incredibly important going forward because I call it the next flexification. I just about said it correctly then of our whole culture, which is ultimately to the bad. You know, when Netflix came along and it said, and you, you log on and, and say to me, I like superheroes, I like history documentaries, I like wildlife, and I like um, kind of gritty, gritty serial dramas, okay? Within two twos, the algorithm knows me almost better than I know myself. All I ever see when I go into Netflix is there's a new documentary about Rome or there's some new superhero series or there's another documentary about lions in Africa or there's some great Scandinavian crime drama. So, and that's great, but I'm not exposing myself to other bits of art and creativity. And this is where Netflix is good. It gives me that sugar high, but just confirms my own bias this is what's actually happening in, 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 in our worlds today, where we are picking new sources which only confirm our own biases. And ultimately, it's to the detriment of the wider society and community. So I think that we need to consciously, as good digital citizens, go up, get out of our comfort zone and go and speak to others who have another view. Not every day, right? Because you don't have fight every day, but once a week, possibly twice a week, and just go and listen to other people that view things differently than you. That was a beautiful answer. And I want to go to our friend Abdul, who, wow, I didn't know Abdul was going to come into the room. And Abdul, we are doing a, um, we are doing an interview for a podcast. And, and I asked um, Roy Field some questions, and now we opened up the audience. So Abdul, you have the chance for posterity, this will be in the interwebs. What do you want to ask Royfield Brown? Um, well, I think what I would ask Royfield is, uh, Royfield, how do you take your tea? <laughs> I take my tea in a very conventional manner, uh, Abdul. Um, I take, I always have English breakfast and I've just been out for afternoon tea, proper afternoon tea, a wonderful Malaysian tea shop in Alameda. And I had Malay English breakfast tea, so black tea, um, uh, with uh, not too much of a liberal helping of milk uh, and with one uh, sugar cube. And it was utterly divine. Abdul, I'm giving, you, I'm, I'm giving you a follow-up question. <laughs> well, I mean, I think that that was such a perfect answer. I, I don't think it warrants follow-up. So I'm I'm truly grateful. So let's um, let's end the end the show right now. This is the first um, give and take interview I've ever done. 
uh, on Clubhouse. And it was a real honor to interview Royfield Brown. Uh, it's um, He's a friend. And I would, and also this is the part for shameless plugs. Royfield, plug yourself. Uh, I do too many podcasts and I always forget one. It's like having too many children. But if you go to royfield.com, which is R-O-I for India, F-I-E-L-D, uh, my podcasts are all there. Um, at the moment, I'm doing um, dum 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 my archers thing. I've kind of mentioned that. Ten American presidents. I'm behind the eight ball with that. I'm halfway through uh, doing part two of the life of Ronald Reagan, life and times of Ronald Reagan. He's just about to run for the presidency in 1976. That's where I left it in part one. Um, I just did on the things that made England. I did uh, my presentation, which I did on Clubhouse about Scar. I've actually recorded that and put that out as a, as a solo podcast. So that's the things that made England. Uh, Matt Corner is a lot of fun. Um, so, um, but Matt Corner is less about maps and kind of more about travel uh, through the lens of people that kind of love maps. Gosh, Mid Atlantic needs a little bit of uh, re, re, rethinking, actually because um, I think I might widen it from US and UK politics and actually do um, more of a world overview uh, with world geopolitics. I'm utterly fascinated by China and the, uh, the, and the South China Sea and its moves against uh, the Philippines and Vietnam with these uh, atolls it's kind of building. I think that is utterly, um, utterly fascinating and somewhat scary geopolitically for those nations. Um, yeah. I just do a lot of stuff. Oh, I'm I'm right. Uh, I got a book deal for how Jamaica conquered the world. So the spread of Jamaican cultural influence, which goes, which comes off the back of the whole kind of scar thing. Um, so go listen to that. It's probably the the podcast series which I'm the most proud of. I interviewed General Colin Powell, just one of the people I interviewed for that series, and it's like nothing else, which um, I think is out there. Looking at the spread of the Jamaican diaspora and how it's affected the modern. Uh, cultural world, global world since 1945. Without the island of Jamaica, is no, there is no hip hop. You know, it, it, it's as profound as that. Uh, Jamaica's cultural influence. Before we go, did you like Colin Powell? What was he like personally? Uh, honestly, he was utterly charming, and I think he only agreed to do the interview because this was somebody asking him about his Jamaican heritage, because everybody just thinks he's an African American. He's not. He's, he's a Jamaican American. And that's the reason why he did the interview. He only refused to answer one question. I asked him what was the. I asked him to explain the uh, the Powell doctrine, uh, military doctrine. He says I'm not going to answer that. Not interested. He wanted to talk about his love of Bob Marley and of calypso music. However, he spoke very honestly about getting things wrong um, with the invasion of Iraq. You know, he said the intelligence was faulty. We believed. They had WMDs there that Saddam Hussein had them. That was a pretext for the invasion. I believed it. I had to go to the UN and give that speech. When I gave that speech, I believed it. Subsequently, I know now that, that all the intel was wrong. We got it wrong. You know, he, he spoke very honestly about that. Um, he was the only person I interviewed and I, I was actually scared. And uh, What was scary? Anyway, um, because... So I'd interviewed music producers for the show before. People who are somewhat famous in the field. Like there's a guy um, called Cleavy, Cleveland Brownie, who um, basically reggaeton, he's Mr. Reggaeton. So um, he created his rhythm called Dembo off the back of being a dancehall producer. So 80s reggae is him and his partner Steely. In the world of Jamaican music, he's only one step down from Bob Marley, right? That's how big this guy is. Uh, at one point, 70, I could get this slightly wrong, 75 of the top Jamaican songs one year were by him and his partner. That's how, how big they were. But this was General Colin Powell. This was somebody who, um, and I didn't say this to him, but I've said this subsequently to, to many Americans to get them to understand the black British experience. That first Gulf War came around in 1991. 
every Brit, white or black, was surprised when the head of the American army came onto our TVs every uh, evening to explain what's happening in Iraq, and he was non-white. All of us black folks turned around and looked at him and went, what? Right? White folks went, oh, well, this is America. So he has, for me, for me, he embodies the potential that America tells itself that it is all the time, that anybody can achieve. Because in 1991, the head of the American army was a black dude, right? So, um, and that can't really happen in the UK because of, the, because of our inherent class system and the fact that black people in any real number have only been in this country since 1948. It's a key difference between us and African-Americans, that we all know that our parents or grandparents came from somewhere else. So we still have a link to that country. And to be the head of the British Army, you're going to have to go on to Sandhurst. And, uh, and there's a certain amount of privilege that you need to have gone to Sandhurst, um, you know, historical legacy. The chances are of a black person running the British Army in the next 10 years is pretty, pretty remote. You need generate, we need to be here for a few generations before then we can go through the Sandhurst system and then and to do that. So... For me, he was somebody who, as a late teenager, no, at 91, I'm 20, 20 by then, I'm 21, 22, you know, formative years, you know, he was almost somebody from history. And I was interviewing him. I, I, I was scared and I was told very clearly, he's only got 20 minutes to do this interview. You interview just about anybody, they'll tell you 20 minutes. They'll be there talking for 40. 23 minutes, he said, I told, I told you 20, it's 23 minutes. I've got to go, Royfield. You know, you know, he was a military man, though he engaged me and he was warm when we spoke. Can I say I've never been, or at least in my recent memory, I've not been nervous before an interview. Um, and this was the only one in a long time I was nervous before. Because oh, shut up. Royfield, no, I'm in all seriousness. That's, that has the added advantage of being true. Um, this was wonderful. Will you come back on the show? Well, if you have me, if I didn't, you know, overstay my welcome or, or you know, stink the room out, yeah, of course I'll come back. So we're going to stop recording right now. And everybody that's listening in the studio audience, we can keep talking. But this, the interview is over. I'm going to hit stop. And now we can have an after party. Yay. Yeah.